You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, I happen to notice uh, this past week, uh, this is probably a little bit of trivia, you may or may not notice it, but the, uh, the Army, the military, is apparently is changing their camo design. And uh, they have completely, they decided a few years ago, there was a design that was kind of a digital camo. I don't know all, the military has acronyms for everything. And I don't know if these things were OCUs or whatever. I get confused about all that because I never served. Jason, you would probably know about all that stuff, right? And, uh, but apparently the design that they had, they thought, the, the, the digital camo, they thought would be kind of like universal, like good in the desert, good everywhere. And they had done their studies and they finally come to the conclusion like, no, that really wasn't a bad idea. Anything that tries to be good everywhere is probably good nowhere. You know, you've got to change it up. So they have retired that design and uh, it was kind of a more greens and tans and almost a little gray and you guys, you know, have seen it. But now they're, they've completely changed it differently. Well, war has always been uh, a part of our lives. Ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve sinned against a holy God, uh, people have been fighting. Started out within families and families fighting families and city fighting city and nation fighting nation. And uh, it's something that will continue on to our Lord Jesus returns and puts down all of that kind of fighting and all of that kind of war. Well, as you guys have known, as we've started this series in Judges, there's this, this cycle that happens that, that God's people do evil in his eyes and they begin to follow the gods of the land and as they follow the gods of the land, they plunge themselves into sin and turning their back on God. In fact, literally last week we saw they forgot God. And so God, out of his loving hand, but firm hand, gives them over to the enemy. And they are oppressed. They are harassed. They are uh, completely dominated, if you will, until they finally wake up one day years later and realize, what are we doing? And they cry out to God for deliverance. And then God uses them, he usually raises up a, a, a hero or a judge, if you will, a deliverer. And then through that person, they experience uh, renewed uh, freedom. That person either themselves leads an attack upon their enemy in this cycle of war and this cycle. Then they go through after that, they get a victory and everything's good for a while while that judge is alive. Then when that judge is dead, then they go back and do the same thing all over again. Well, this morning, as we kick off and walking through that in Judges chapter 4 and 5, we see at length in detail more about the battle than about the behind the scenes. Up till now, we've been kind of seeing all of this behind the scenes, what idolatry is all about. But Judges 4 and 5 is a story really about the battle itself and about how those things unfolded. So this morning, we're going to take a, a little bit of an opportunity to think about if God had them fighting a war, what's the war that we today should be fighting? You see, as the church of the New Testament, our world is very different than Old Testament, if you will. Uh, we are not so much to be fighting wars against people, but we definitely have a mission in front of us that God is sending us out into the world around us, but it's not quite the same. So let me read from the passage and we'll talk about it. So read with me if you would first in Judges chapter 4. The Bible says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. 
you try to say Schenectady and thought that was hard. You try to say that one. So I'm not even going to try to spell that one. I can't even say it again. But I did pretty well the first time. Verse 3, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So same cycle, 20 years. Because they had bowed down to those idols and those people, God gave them over. But this king is more powerful. He had almost a thousand chariots, would have been far superior um, in terms of military power, military might. And the Bible says he oppressed them cruelly. I'm sure it involved financially, but more than that. I'm sure there was slavery, indentured, all kinds of things going on. Now in verse 4, the Bible says this, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali, and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman." Then Deborah arose and went to Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali and Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up with him, or went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. And the story continues as they meet in battle. God told them very simply, He said, Barak, you are to go take 10,000 of your troops and go to the specific place, Mount Tabor. And there was a river near there. And he said, I'm going to then bring Cicero with all of his chariots, and I'm going to deliver them into your hand. So they go, and Barak, it was a little knees knocking, says to Deborah, I'll go if you go with me. And so she says, all right, very well, I will do that. And they go off to war, and so here comes Cicero with all of his chariots and military power. And the next part of the story is we hear that God does something amazing, and somehow... Those, those warriors, those actually not warriors, more like farmers, uh, they did not, Israel didn't have a standing military at that time. In fact, we'll see in just a few minutes, they didn't even have a good weaponry, let alone not, no chariots and no horses and all of that. But somehow, and we'll, I'll tell you by the end of the message this morning, God did something amazing so that this army of supreme power and authority uh, well advanced beyond what Israel had, takes flight. And the Jews end up killing the entire army except for Sisera. Sisera is this general. He gets down out of his chariot and runs away from the battle. And he goes and takes refuge in a community in hoping to find rest and find safety. And all of his troops are dead and he alone is saved. And so a woman by the name of Jael sees him coming and knows that he's coming from war, and assumes that he has lost. And she says, come in here, you can come stay inside my tent. And he thinks she's a friend. 
And she come, he comes in and he asks her for something to drink and she gives him something to drink and he lays down there and he covers him over and then she takes in her hand a tent peg. Don't think little backpacking camping tent peg like this. Think big metal rod and apparently in those days, ladies, you would have been awesome with a hammer because you would have helped putting tents, you know, pounding tents in place. And don't think little 16, 12 ounce hammer. Think probably more like a two or five pound sledgehammer. And while he's asleep, must have been a side sleeper because the Bible says that she takes the tent peg and puts it up to his temple, takes that hammer and hits it and drives that stake right through his temple, literally right into the ground and he dies on the spot. Crazy, crazy graphic. Sean, why are you telling us this morning? I'm not even through my first <laughs> cup of coffee. Like, okay, kids, plug your ears on that one, you know? Again, it's, the Bible tells us real world, guys. Like, you can't make this stuff up, for real. I mean, that lady was amazing, what she did. I don't think I would have been able to do that, but she did. So before we talk about, that's, that was Israel's mandate. Before we talk about what our mandate is in the New Testament, I want to touch base on this whole thing of holy war. Some people look at the Old Testament and they feel like, oh, that is so graphic and so violent. How in the world? God is supposed to be a God of love, and this God in the Old Testament is completely different than Jesus. Jesus is walking around and having mercy on people and feeding the 5,000 and all these good things, and oh, that is barbaric and graphic and what's going on? And it causes some people who, you know, doubt the reliability of the Bible or try to, you know, in our politically correct world, just try to wrestle with the whole morality of that. And I don't want to dive too deeply down into that road because we could literally take hours discussing it. But let me make a couple of observations along the way. One, God is always just. God never does anything that is unjust. Now, he is a tough God, and he is a very firm God, and the Bible has told us that because of all of our sins, we all have deserved to die. When we sin in this world, we carry over our heads a death sentence. We are all uh, criminals convicted in God's court of law. In fact, there's a warrant out for us, if you will. Now, the people that God, God told Israel, you are to go and conquer and to kill these pe people, it was not their choice, it was God's choice. The, choice. the fault is upon God. They were literally the mere instrument of His justice. Not much different than, than law enforcement today, not much different than if uh, a nation, whether it's ours or any other nation, that, that enforces uh, capital punishment. Very same kind, kind of authority. Another piece that you need to understand with this, at the end of chapter 5, we discover is the victory is had and everyone is singing that they recognize that had Israel not won this battle, that there would have been thousands of women who would have been captured, taken captive, raped, pillaged, horrible. Don't, don't picture little Mr. Rogers kinds of warriors, all right? This isn't a time where might is right and there is a protection that was going on. And God said, these people are idolaters. They are completely not only disgracing my name, but they are horrific, barbaric people. And God placed upon them the sentence of death. And God um, and Israel was to execute that. Now, for you and for me today, what is the war that we wage? As Christians, God does not call us to a holy jihad, all right? There is, there is no place for that in the world today. This is a different world than at that point in time. 
That is not what we're to be about. In fact, there's even some brand of Christianity, even in America, that you know, we need to wage a war for America. And to be perfectly honest, I just don't see a lot of that in the Bible. I don't see it in the New Testament. If there's any war that we should be waging, it should be for the souls of men and women and children. It should be the sharing the gospel and the message of salvation and introducing people to a God who loves them, a God who, to whom they're accountable, whether they recognize him or not, whether they believe in him or not, but a God that wants them to know him and wants to save them, wants to forgive them of their sin. Our war is not a war at all. It is a it is a redemption plan. It is a plan of salvation. It is a carrying out the rescue attempts of our God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to save us from our sins. And our job is to tell people about that, to introduce people to Jesus, to teach them what it means to know him and to follow him and to live completely different. That is in very much the same way God in the Old Testament was trying to establish the nation of Israel, a people that would follow him, that would in turn be a testimony to the world of what it means to know the one true God. So we're to do that just minus all the war and all the killing and thankfully minus all tent pegs and all other kinds of things along the way. So this morning I want us to talk about how do we go about that. And I want to take this opportunity of the passage that we just read that, that dives more into the war side of things, so, uh, into how, how this, this battle was won. Look at chapter 5, verse 1, and I want you to notice a verse, and this is actually the outline that I'm sharing with you today. So the Bible says in Judges chapter 5, verse 1, Then sang Deborah, so this is after the war is over, they won and routed the enemy, Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. This was a song, it was a poem, but they sung it. That the leaders, this is verse 2, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that's the first thing I'm going to share, that the people offered themselves willingly, that's the second thing I'm going to share, bless the Lord. Three things of what we as a church need to do and we need to be as we try to follow out on the mission that God has given us. Leaders need to lead, people need to participate, and God has to show up. Very simply. You see, when Deborah, when God told Deborah she was the prophetess of that land of that time and she was the one speaking up and speaking out in behalf of God's people, and she revealed to Barak, said, you're the guy, you're the general, you're the one to lead God's troops into battle. And after the battle was won, they together sang this incredible song that in essence unpacks how this battle was really won. And it was really won because God's leaders stood up, responded to God, and they led God's people. So I want us first to recognize that as a church, as we think about our future and where we're headed, that, that God expects leaders to stand up. God expects leaders to step forward and move forward and to lead God's people into to what he's doing. Now, and, and for us to do that, it means then that the leader should be responding to God. You see, leaders by nature should not be following their own dream. They should not be following, no matter how incredible it is, no matter how wonderful it sounds, no matter how inspiring it is and how God-honoring it might be, 
Leaders are supposed to respond to God's leading. Sean, that sounds kind of basic and simple. I know it is. But can I tell you how uncommon that is amongst God's leaders and how difficult it is? There's times that we, I have to check my heart. Okay, Sean, am I wanting to do this because I want to do this? Because I think it's cool? Because I think it's right? Because I think it's awesome? Or is God really wanting to do this? Mom and dad, you at home, you have to ask yourselves those questions all the time. When you peer into your heart, it's not always easy to tell why you're doing what you're doing. But the very obvious thing is, is that God said, hey, Barak, I got a job for you, son. You need to go and take 10,000 people. I've got a battle for you to fight. So as we think about us as a church, we should be, have leaders that know how to step forward, know how to listen to the voice of God, and know how to, in turn, point, guys, I think this is the way that God is leading us. Leaders are supposed to lead out of response of what God wants to do. Now, guys, what does God want to do around us? I just mentioned earlier, it's kind of like telling the punchline of the joke before you tell a joke, but God wants to save people. He wants people to know him. He wants people to experience life change that we talked about all week long. He wants to change our lives. He wants people to experience what life is really like, and he wants to use us to do that. He doesn't need us. He can do it completely apart from us, but he's chosen to do it with us, and he does it by always providing uh, leaders that will step up and, and lead God's people. For those, uh, uh, hopefully most of you guys have received in part of our regular email communication a, a copy of our Constitution and bylaws that we are recommending to be re, re, revised. So if you're not on my email list, this may be news to you. Um, and I would be glad to, as we've mentioned uh, in times past, to put you on that. Just make sure that you're, you give me your email address. But we are recommending that a, a pretty thorough revision of our Constitution and bylaws. And we're asking today, by the end of the day, that people have read through that and make recommendations to us to change. And so those, those, all those recommendations, I've gotten several of them from people, and they'll be sifted through, and we'll look through that. And then we will come back, we'll publish a, a kind of a new revised revision, if you will. And then uh, in two weeks from now, we're going to have a meeting that we're going to discuss all of those things. And we're going to finalize what that final form looks like. And just so that there's plenty of opportunity for input, you guys are going to be able, even at that meeting, if there's something new that we didn't get out, that we can make some final tweaks and changes on it. But at the end of that meeting, in two weeks, uh, two weeks after that, we're going to do a final just ballot vote. No discussion, just thumbs up, thumbs down, everything good. So this big thing that I want you to understand in our Constitution bylaws, and Sean, my goodness, this is like a lot of details. This is not normal. I know, but here's the deal. As a church, we are a church that, is, that is, makes decisions together as a church body, okay? There's not this outside group that tells us what to do, all right? Neither is there an inside group that tells us everything what to do. We're not a, a, a pastor or an elder-controlled church. Neither are we an external, denominationally, some other group tells us what to do. Um, instead, we together make the big decisions. And outside of choosing a pastor, especially your, our lead pastor, what we decide in our Constitution and bylaws is absolutely the biggest decision that we could ever make as a church. This is not whether or not do we do Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts coffee, all right? This is not whether or not we meet at 10 o'clock or 10.30. This is not whether or not we use this curriculum versus that curriculum. Our Constitution bylaws are actually, the Bible defines us and gives us our purpose and our direction, but our Constitution and bylaws is our declaration of that. 
And, they're, and it's actually us saying who we are as a church, what we're going to be doing, and how we're going to be about doing that. Those are huge. They have implications and impacts for years to come. And the point that I'm trying to make in the middle of all of this is we've tried to frame this Constitution and bylaws, and hopefully it comes through, because reading that stuff can sometimes be like reading your taxes, like 1040, you know, see this subparagraph A, section two, three, and you're just like, oh my goodness, I just want to watch football and, you know, have lunch or something. But here's the overall picture of what we're trying to accomplish with that. We want to be a church that is pastor-led, that is deacon-served, but is, that is team-ministered. So the church decides the big things. We decide constitution bylaws. We decide every year what our budget is. We pastors don't have that authority, any any of the authority to do any of that. Uh, we decide on our, our trustees, and we make some other key decisions. And as needed, along the way, we make these big things. And so, as you guys know, we don't do a lot of meetings at River. We'll do an annual meeting, but then these other things along the way, we'll do them as needed. And this is big enough that we're doing a special meeting for this, and we're taking our time. So we want to be, in the way we're positioning our churches, to be led by pastors, served by deacons, and ministered by teams of people. Here's what I mean by that. Some churches, uh, the pastors lead or the elders lead, but they do more than that. They, they almost like all the decisions are made within that group of people. And we don't want to do that. We want the church to own the big decisions. But we want the church to be able to delegate many decisions, actually most decisions, to people to actually execute, to put people in place and trust them and to give them the responsibility along with the authority and the accountability to do well in those kinds of positions. And we expect the pastors to lead out, to be the, the front end of all of that. The deacons, in turn, are to serve as the needs of the church. Sean, we don't have any deacons right now. I know. We will. I, I promise. I will. Um, we, we're probably close to doing that. I say close. We're at least a year away from walking through that process. And as you guys know, and some of you guys, if you're newer into our church in the last uh, few weeks or months, um, you may not notice this or not, but our church is almost, we pretty much have doubled in the last two years. And so with that, growth is just a lot of development and things that we have to work through and accomplish together. But some churches, what happens if there's a single pastor, the deacons end up being the overseers, the leaders of the church, because what happens, there's this cycle. The pastor will come, he'll stay a few years, he'll leave. Then in the vacuum, the deacons step in and become the spiritual leaders. And then over time, the deacons really are the ones leading the church more than the pastor. And we want to be quite transparently and honest with you, we want to avoid that. We think deacons are called to serve. They're called to serve the needs of the body. They're called to lead their thing, but they're not called to oversee the whole church. They're not called to be, we, we, don't, we don't want a Republican Democrat, or, or actually that's not the, the framework I want. We don't want the balance of power in the U.S. like Congress, you know, versus our executive branch or our judicial branch. This is pastors are to lead. Deacons are to serve in the church. That's what we see in the book of Acts over and over again. In fact, they were spiritual servants in that role, not just ministering to the widow's table, but they actually shared the gospel. We see them preaching the gospel. Stephen got stoned because he was preaching the gospel. Philip went and shared the gospel with a man from Ethiopia and was a missionary, if you will, to that people group. And so that's what we want for our deacons. And we want our teams of people to do the ministry together. We're a, I'm big on teams. I'm a 
collaborative leader as a, as a pastor, if you guys don't, don't know that yet, I, I, I like to make decisions when I feel like they're clear and need to be made, but I would say usually for me that's like 20% of decisions. Probably 50 to 60%, 70% of decisions I like to make together as a team because I believe in a safety multitude of counselors and, and want us to, 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 you know, to kind of work through those. I like to put things on the table, get input, and us to figure those things out together. But we serve that in that role together. Well, Sean, what about pastors when they go off the rails? How many of you have been in meetings or your church been, if you were part of a church before, but where things just seem to go awry with a pastor or one of the pastors? How many, this is, we're not gonna go far down that road, don't worry, I won't get you to, all right, there's a few of you in the room. Um, if you live long enough and Jesus tarries and you're part of a local church, you will see that happen more and more. So here's the way that we believe our pastors are accountable. They first and foremost, it may be assumed obvious, they're, they're accountable to God, okay? Truly are. But let's be honest, sometimes God's more patient than people are. And sometimes God says, I want people to deal with things. Second tier of responsibility of pastors are among themselves. Uh, when Jeremy was here, we had three pastors, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. We're now down to two, and I feel like we're missing one. And I believe in time we will, will replace that. Will that be our next music worship pastor? Maybe. Our next music worship leader may not be a pastor. I don't know. We're, we're in the front end of looking for that person, and they may be. But regardless, uh, we ultimately, I believe, will have at least one more pastor in the, in the future. And so those three men, they each need to have a backbone. They don't need to be one lead guy and two people who are just yes men. You know, that's ridiculous. In fact, that's really not a good team to begin with. They need to be unified, but they need to be able to speak truth in each other's lives. Well, Sean, what happens if somehow behind the scenes they just aren't doing what they should be doing? Well, we, the new Constitution bylaws, we will have a personnel team that is, they are responsible to. In fact, we're writing into that that every year I would do whoever's the lead pastor, and this would be me at this point, would write a self-evaluation, evaluating my life and ministry and whatever this past year, and would give that every year annually to our personnel team who gets to read that and sit down. You see, I, I, I want as a church, as a leader, to have good habits when we don't have problems. And I believe that when we do that, it keeps us from having problems. And then when problems do surface, we've got the right procedure in place and it's not that big of a deal. And so the personnel team, it handles it. Well, Sean, what happens if the personnel team falls asleep at the switch? Well, we have this wonderful thing called church family. And because we don't answer anybody else, every one of us who's a part of the church and a member can step up and say, I think there's a problem and can move forward. So we have lots of accountability in the middle of that. But I want us to recognize God brought an incredible victory and chapter five is a praise song to God and his glory. And God's recipe of how do you accomplish the mission of what you should be doing, the rest, part of the recipe is that leaders have to lead. And we try to structure river in such a way that pastors have the freedom to leave, have the responsibility to lead and the accountability to lead well. And that leads me to the second thing is, is that leaders need to lead, but people need to participate. That's what verse two said. There brought such joy that this, this group of people saw God work and, and deliver them and brought freedom and victory in their lives and removed them from the hand of oppression when they turned their heart right to God. 
And God used the leaders, but they, and they saw the leaders in unity working together. And by the way, it wasn't just pastors, and I'm already past that point, but later on there were other leaders. There were lieutenants and commanders in that army that they talk about. So as, as a church at River, it's not just about pastors leading. It's about lots of leaders that God wants to raise up and use together, and, and we function in all of these ways together. But the next key point is, is that people participate, that they step forward, and, and together they, they leaned into it. Barak and Deborah were not enough to win the victory. As the call went out to the 12 tri tribes of Israel, and these were, again, putting all these people together, there would have been you know, millions of people. And, and there were leaders in each of those clans, and they put the word out to their own clan, their own tribe, and, and those people made a decision whether or not to come and join the fight, and those people jumped into the middle of it, and they all did what made sense to them and what they could do, and they did it together. But I want us to recognize that not everybody jumped into the middle of it. Look at what verse 5 is, or chapter 5 says. In verse in verse 14, this is the tribe of Ephraim. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. There's those next tier of leaders I mentioned. From Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, instead of like lieutenant's, um, uh, instead of like captain's bars or whatever, apparently there was a staff that lieutenants had when they were leading the people. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. What's it saying? It said all these people came, and they came to join in the middle of the fight. So God does something amazing in a church. When a church has leaders who lead well, who respond to the calling of God in their life, who step out in faith, I totally forgot to talk to you about that one too, totally step out in faith. I mean, God said, hey guys, you're going up against an army that's going to be complete military power, authority that has oppressed you for 20 years. And they had to completely just step out and obey God when God didn't tell them exactly what they were going to do, how they were going to do it. He said, yeah, just go down to that mountain over there, hang out by that river, go camp a while, and I'm going to raise the other guy up and he's going to come meet you in battle. God, what? what? How, how's that going to work? God didn't tell him what all he was going to do. He just said, trust me. Here's what I want you to do as leaders. You summon the people, and the people stepped forward in faith right along with the leaders and trusted God in the process, and God won a victory. But some of the people didn't. Notice the next part of this verse, and this is interesting. In middle of verse 16, among the clans of Reuben, this is another tribe, there were great searchings, of heart. Reuben said, huh, wow, we need to sit back and pray about this a while. We need to think about this a little bit more. I'm not so sure that that's what we should be doing. Over in Deuteronomy, the Bible said that before you go out to war, you should search deeply in your heart and, and think through and prepare yourself for that battle, for God to win that battle. Well, Reuben never got to the point or they could get out of their prayer meeting. There's a time to pray, and there's a time to get out and do something. And Reuben could never say, nope, we need to pray some more. Nope, we need to search more. And they were busy, so busy searching their heart that the battle happened, and they totally missed it. Look at the next group of people. And Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with his ships? Asher 
sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. You see, these groups of people heard the call to serve. They heard the call of ministry. They knew what the responsibility of the church was. But they said, no, we're just going to keep doing our thing. We don't, we don't have time for that. We're, we're, we're not going to go down there. We're going to stay right where we are. No, I, and they had whatever all the reasons were. Their leaders either didn't lead well and didn't impress upon them the urgency, but they heard the call, but they refused the call. And everybody else, after the battle was won, is scratching their head like, why did they do that? That's why. Why didn't they do something? God is at work in our church, guys. I hope you see it. I see it in people's lives, and it's amazing. And it's because people are stepping forward and doing all kinds of things. The real heroes in this battle were really the people who didn't directly hear the call of God. I mean, Deborah heard it clearly. Somehow the Holy Spirit of God conveyed it to her, and she turned around and pointed her finger at Barak. But think about if you were one of those guys, you know, farming your back field or whatever, and some guy says, oh, we're going out to war tomorrow. What? And they stepped forward and they believed God. And they, they stepped out in an incredible amount of faith against all odds and believed that God was up to something in the, in the middle of that. So, Sean, what is God wanting to do in our church? Well, we know big picture, high altitude, we want to help people experience life change that comes by knowing and following Jesus. Well, what does that really mean, Sean? Well, the way that really plays out is we want to introduce people to Jesus. We want to love Him ourselves. We want to love our church community together. And, and we want to love the community that is around us. Those are the three LC, three parts of the LC3 that we talk about, loving Christ, loving our church, and loving our community. And we spend most of our time talking about loving Christ, quite a bit of time talking about loving one another as a church, how we're to relate to one another as a family. We spend a little bit of time talking about what does it mean to love a com our communities that are around us that don't know Jesus, that, that don't have a hope, eternal hope inside of them. You see, that's the area that I want us to think about this morning. God calls us to engage the people around us with the gospel. Days gone by, that used to look like, well, you'd go on Saturday mornings and knock on doors and invite people to Jesus. And that's still an okay thing to do. But let's be honest, most of us today don't want anybody coming to our house to do that. We just don't. I'm not sitting around on my porch saying, you know, I hope somebody stops by and starts talking to me about something that, you know, I have no idea what they're talking about and really not interested in. Most of us don't sit around doing that. But God does have a war for us to, a battle to fight, if you will, a spiritual battle for the souls of men and women and, and children around us. When I think about what a church should do today, how to share that message of salvation, how to work in people's lives, there's some different strategies that we need to truly be thinking about and focus on. One of those is community service. One, one of those is helping people who are in need. We've done a number of those little things in the past where we've helped like the Circle of Champs, the, the ministry that was connected with the Y. We've worked with Strides for Stride, um, a, a organization that works with wounded vets and children with disabilities. Neither of them are spiritual 
organizations or religious or organizations of faith of, 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 of any kind. But we do it because we believe that we're to be salt and light in the world around us. And as a church, rather than trying to create a venue that, hey, we want everybody to come, we're trying to be a little more intentional to do what Jesus told us to do, which is kind of like, hey, let's get out of here and let's go out there and be who Jesus called us to be. There's a reason Jesus didn't stay in Jerusalem. And part of that was he spread around and, and brought his message of salvation and hope to the people around. I would love for us as a church to where we had community service projects happening regularly. I would love us as a church to where a couple, two or three times a year, we were building a, a handicap ramp. We were, you know, raking someone's lawn. We were, you know, helping somebody that couldn't do things uh, for themselves just because we care and we love them. I would love for us to do that. See, sometimes in churches I get convicted that, well, we want people to we, to, to run our programs and our things, and, and we do. I'm grateful. Everybody like to have a cup of coffee in the morning? I do. Somebody comes and makes it, and I'm grateful for our cafe team. I'm grateful for our ushers to help take care of things. The teams that come and take care of the baptistry, prepares Lord's Supper. I'm grateful for all of that. Teams that clean our church and, and on all of those things. But sometimes if we're not careful as a church, we make people think that that's the only thing that you can do. And truth of the matter is, is there's a lot of loving the community around us that we need to do as a church. And so I want to challenge you and encourage you that maybe community service is something you might want to think about or know about. I'm actually going to help somebody this week who um, has three children, two little girls, sister, their sisters. I can picture them together, very close in age, look like twins. But one of them is a, has a terrible um, uh, illness. She can't walk she has to be in a wheelchair and oftentimes i'll see her with a mask her immune system is really depressed and just can't be um, you know around people and her life expectancy is not long and i don't remember the name of the disease but uh, they just recently had to move from the capital region uh, down to memphis and he's trying to finish up a little punch list of things in his house so he can put his house on the market so I'm going to go this week to maybe put a couple of interior doors in, a little bit of flooring, maybe, oh, I hope I don't have to paint. I hate painting with a purple passion, but I'll do it if I have to. But if you want to join me in that, let me know, and I'll, maybe we can find a time to do that. So that's one area. Another thing that I want us as a church to do, you guys know, if you've been here for several years, know that we went to Mexico for two or three years in a row. And uh, working with a local pastor who was starting a church and sharing the gospel uh, amongst the Nahuatl people, uh, essentially the Native Americans of Mexico, not so much the, uh, the, the, the uh, traditional Mexican people that are Spanish descent, but these were the people that were forced up into the mountains, truly like Native Americans of Mexico. Uh, the Nahuatl are actually the descendant of the Aztec people, and only about 2 to 3% of them have a relationship with Christ, much like our area. And we would go and we'd stay there and we'd share the gospel and help them start that church and, 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 uh, and tell people about Jesus, encourage them, all that kind of stuff. Well, two years ago, I wanted to go another year, but we didn't have enough people to go, so we didn't. Last year, I just didn't sense that we were at that point either. I'd really like to go next year. But to go, I could use three or four people to go with me. Um, to, we don't need 20. Uh, I kind of like, like the Green Beret team. I like those small groups, not the 20 and 50 people on a big bus. I like the, the, the smaller groups. But, so if you're interested in that, I wish you'd talk to me about that. 
another area that we want to reach out is I think about church, about the, the ministry in front of us. As you guys know, as a young church, we don't have an established youth ministry. We have, we have a lot of stuff and engagement with the college students and a lot with kids. And we've a men's and women's ministry the last couple of years have really taken off as well. And we, of course, do a, a lot of things uh, around us. But youth, teenagers, sixth grade, uh, high school, seniors, that's been a, a vacuum in the middle of that. Uh, I, as I sh I've shared periodically along the way, I'd really like to do something with them. Uh, could we hire or call a guy who's a worship guy and a youth guy? We could. It might happen. I don't know. But I would rather us take responsibility for our youth ministry ourselves and not just hire somebody to come in and, and do that kind of thing. And philosophically as a church, whenever I look at the Bible, the Bible always gives youth the, the raising and teaching of children, and teenagers are part of that, it always gives it to mom and dad. So when we think about youth ministry, I want us to, as we think about our future, we're picturing not so much that, well, we gotta have somebody here because our youth have nothing or they don't have any spiritual development in their life. Hey, mom and dad, God gives you a responsibility to give that to them. We wanna supplement that, we wanna support that, uh, but it's way more than event-based to, to make that happen. It's got to be something that's in your home and modeled and taught. And, and as a church, we want to support mom and dad and walk with them in those things, much like we do the kids' things. One of the reasons we encourage parents to serve in the kids' ministry is, is because if you're in there once a month or every few weeks, you, you are seeing modeled in front of you how to engage kids with the Bible and how to talk to them. In fact, you will go home and the kids will come home with things that, uh, Bible verses and all kinds of tools that you can actually use every week at home with your own kids. And so we actually want parents in there, not just because we can use the help, but we want parents to learn how to teach and disciple their kids and to have it modeled. And much in the same way, I want our youth ministry to have strong parent involvement because I want mom and dad to be able to go home and to know how to and how to engage them with the Bible rather than just having somebody else who does it for them. We take our kids to do all kinds of things around us and all kinds of activities and sports and everything under the sun and we have them teach them things that they know what to do. I never played soccer as a kid. I don't know the first rule in soccer. I can't teach my kid how to play soccer to save my life. So I took my kids to a soccer camp and somebody else taught them. We can't do that with the Bible, guys. Church is not like other ministries around us. Mom and dad, that's your responsibility to, to help them know that. And we as a church want to be a part of that. So I've said all that to say this. If you are interested or have ideas about youth, I'd love to know that. I would love to have some people that are like, you know, I have that burden in my heart. That's a battle that is going on in the world around us for the hearts and minds of our kids. And we actually need to step forward in that, not to do it for the parents, but to do it with the parents to do it along that way. And there's another area that I've not talked about before at River. I would one day love to see us have something for people that are battling um, just really big issues in life, whether it, be, whether it be addictions or anger issues or overcoming past abuse or those kinds of things. You see, the, the gospel, the world around us truly is unraveling more and more. People are hurting more and more. Their world is falling apart more and more. They're dealing with way bigger issues than ever before. Well, I don't know that ever before, but it, more people are without God than ever before. 
and they are lacking the ability, and not just the coping skills, but they're lacking the answers to life and how to walk through that. And so we're going to see more and more big issues. And the other thing that happens along the way is that they don't see the church as a place of hope and as a place for answers. They actually see the church as something that is just out for itself, which by the way, that's why community service is so important because it demonstrates to the world that we care about them and that Jesus cares about them and we get it outside of ourselves. But increasingly, people are not going to be looking for answers, how to deal with their anxiety, how to deal with their crushing anger, how to overcome past abuse, how to deal with the, the, the habits and addictions and all of these things in life. And they know that just coming and sitting on a Sunday morning isn't somehow going to miraculously take care of that. I would love to see us one day to have a ministry to help people process and work some of those real challenges in their life. I don't know if it's a Celebrate Recovery or not, if you're familiar with that. That's for more than just with people with addictions. Two or three of you in the last couple of months have talked to me about that, and that has, you know, that always perks my ears, and I'm always listening what God's stirring up in the middle of our people, but I would love to see a ministry that engages people where they don't feel like they have to come to church and they can hear truth hear and hear uh, hope and process and get answers that then ultimately leads them to Jesus. I would love to see us do that sometime. If that's something you're at all interested in and being a part of, I would love to know that one too. So, our, and last one that I'll share before I share the last point in our sermon. God sends us all today, and I'm sharing you kind of as the general looking at the spiritual climate and the world that we're in as a pastor looking at it like a mission strategist. Most people will never walk through the doors of all the churches in the capital region. Put all the churches together and more than half of the people, I don't know, maybe three quarters of the people in our, in our capital region won't go to church on any, uh, within like a year or two, not even every week or once a week. The vast majority won't. Increasingly, there are the people who have never been in a church before and not even sure who Jesus is. What that means is, is that for you and I to accomplish the mission that God has before us is we have to live that out 24-7. Not just when we're inside these walls, but when you're at work and when you're uh, at play and when you're shopping and when you're all out and about. Now, this one's the hardest of all the ones I'm talking about. It can, be, can it be challenging to fly to another country and eat different food and sleep in bad situations and talk to somebody through a translator? Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're going to go home. And it's once a week, and you've got other people with you. I think it's the hardest challenge to live it out yourself 24-7 at your workplace, among your family, among your distant family, your, your relatives, among people that know you. You see, God tells us today that he wants us to live that faith out, to be, not to be in fear, not to hide it, not to be a jerk about it, not to be obnoxious about it, but to be transparent about it. And that means every day being ready and able and, and showing up for service to God and saying, God, what would you want to do through my life this day at my work or at my school? What do you want to do through me on Monday morning? God, what do you want to do through me this week at work? How do you want to touch other people's lives for me? See, you and I, if we don't live with that mindset, then we're not available to be used by God. Because opportunities will surface and we'll never see them because we're not thinking about them, we're not praying about them, we're not looking about them, we're just dealing with what's in front of us. And, 
And yeah, that's hard to deal with all the headaches that we have at work and life, but I want us to recognize, much like Israel, God has a mission in front of us, and it's living out our faith, introducing people to who we are, to who Jesus is along the way. People are hurting and looking for hope. They're looking for answers. And if you and I believe the lie of the enemy, then we'll cower and we'll be afraid and we'll live in fear. And instead of just being genuine and real, uh, they'll never have hope. Now, some people along the way, yeah, they will challenge us. And yeah, they won't like it. And yeah, whatever. But you need to realize, though, that that's actually a sign that things are okay, that God wants to use you. So for us, leaders lead, people participate. So I don't know where you want to participate, where you have been. I'm trying to populate the playing field a little bit more of things that you actually can be involved in um, besides what we just always advertise. There's a lot of opportunities around us. And as a church, I would love to see us do these things in the future. Last big thing, for God to use us as a church, not only do leaders need to lead, people participate, but the third thing is God has to show up, guys. That's what chapter 5 talks about. She says that the, the prayer was, bless the Lord. Look at verse 3. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went up from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord and even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. You want to know how God won the victory for Israel? They had to have been wondering, God, how's this going to work? How do a bunch of foot soldiers without modern weaponry goes up against a trained force with the speed and the abilities of chariots? You know what God did? God brought down in the middle of the dry season when all this was going on an incredible thunder rainstorm that they had never experienced before. The mountain shook as it were with the thunder and so much water came down that it flooded all of that. And if you read the tale in chapter five, they were washed away. The chariots basically got so stuck in the mud, they were actually not helpful. They actually were detriment to them. And God brought forth all the heavens opened up right over them. Put your mind, put yourselves in the shoes of the, uh, of the people there. They would have thought, oh my goodness, our God Baal, who's the weather God, is working against us. What's going on? He's even against us. Because it was not at all supposed to rain in that time of year and in that kind of place and in that kind of way. They thought that they were good to go. And so it brought terror into their hearts and it made them completely vulnerable. They didn't know how to adapt on the fly and they were routed by the Jews fighting in the, I guess, in the pouring rain and all the torrential downpours and all of that and brought such chaos that, that people died and, and they all went from there. You see, when God wants you and I to step forward, much like I've done today, God only said, hey, here's your next step. Go over there and be ready to fight. And he tells us the last step. You're going to have the victory. But he doesn't tell us all the little steps in between. You know what God really wants in our life? He just wants us to obey that next step and trust that he's got the next 30 steps in place because he's guaranteed us the victory. You see, in all, each of the things that I just talked about for us as a church, and we've talked in the past about planting other churches, I don't know how many of those details will play out. But as a pastor and as a leader of, of River, I'm committed to those next steps. 
trusting that when we take that step, then God shows us the next step. As we take that step, God shows us the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And in the middle of that, God shows up and does what only God can do. It was just six years ago when I became pastor at River, and uh, uh, our pastor who had started the church, our family and I were a member of it, as some of you guys were at that time. Pastor Anthony did a great job planting our church, and God moved him on to be a chaplain. And what I knew as a leader and as a, as a, a, a guy who works with churches and church plants, that I knew that while we had a good number of people, we lost not quite half the church literally overnight. We dropped and shrank right back down. There was a lot of people that were coming to church but not really bought into it. I knew that we were kind of in trouble financially. We were wheels were beginning to come off back then, and I could just tell the energy and momentum and all of that and thought, ooh, this is going to be hard. Um, it's when you have a church running, you know, 60, 70 people that's been around for 50 years, it could probably go on for another 50 years. But when you have a young church and those 60 people are not glued together well and things are beginning to fall apart and some people are leaving, um, it gets tough. And honestly, I remember that time thinking, we got nothing. If people don't want Jesus, I got nothing for them. Truly nothing. We don't have youth group. We don't have college student ministries. We don't have men's ministry. We don't have women's ministries. We don't have nothing. Um, all we've got is Jesus. And truth be known, that's all we've got today, isn't it? That's all we've got. God has to show up in people's lives. So guys, I feel like as a church that our future, um, God is truly stirring something up amazing in our midst. And I believe that God is going to use us even more in the future. But leaders lead, people participate, and God has to show up. So my question is this morning is where does God want you to participate? Where does God want you to be a part of what he's up to? What role do you want to play? I know today, just like in Israel, some people will ponder like, oh, I can't do that now. I'm not ready for that. People will ponder membership. Well, I'm not ready for membership. Well, when you, when you aren't a member, you don't get to be a part of the decisions and the directions, and you end up staying back by the docks, or you end up being like Reuben, just contemplating things. Or maybe, well, I don't know if it's the right time to do X, Y, Z, but I want to challenge you. And rather than putting sign-up sheets or any big formal thing, I'm asking you actually more informal to just talk to me, email me, text me. Hey, Sean, I've thought about this. I don't know what this means, but I'm kind of interested in that. And I'll say, that's cool. I don't know what it means either, but let's pray, let's talk, and let's start taking the next step after that and see where those kinds of things go. So as our team comes up, we're going to head into a time of our Lord's Supper. We have the victory today. We have the victory that Jesus has won the battle over sin and death, and our sin and death, that's the battle that we fight, not a physical war. And so as a church, we know that that that's the ultimate outcome of what this is all about. So this Lord's Supper is our time that we want to remember our God, to remember how much he loved us, to remember the price that he paid, to remember that our sins are paid, that they're covered, that through Jesus Christ that we are free, we are forgiven, shame has been removed, we have a relationship with God the Father, and he loves us. And so these elements don't do anything to save us or directly change our life today. But God, Jesus himself told us that, that he wants us to remember him regularly. 
And in this way, it kind of helps us keep focus on that we're all about Jesus. This is the, the rescue attempt that we're all running. This out of what Jesus did on the cross for us is why we exist as a church. It's why we have a future together, and it's a part of what we are planning for. It's part of the race that we're running, the missions in front of us. So I want you to personally reflect on what Jesus has done for you, that he loved you and he sent his son to die on the cross for you. So let me pray. And ushers, uh, I'm going to ask you to come up here while I'm, as I'm praying, and we're gonna, they're going to pass this out during our next song. Father, thank you for Jesus, that he died for us, he saved us. Thank you for caring for us. Father, we were sinners, and Jesus died for us. Thank you that the battle and the victory has been won through him. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.